Hello and welcome to Box Cutters, episode 340. Just choke on it or spit it out. My name is Josh Canal. To my left, John Richards. Hello, listener. To my right, Brett Cropley. Good evening, viewers. This is Box Cutters. It's all about television. And in this week's episode, we're going to review the BBC Three drama, In the Flesh. Mm-hmm. John is going to take us through a things you may have missed. It's Australian. I'm a bit too excited, in all it's, honesty. I, I, I'm really a bit too excited. I, I am as well. When I got your email, I was... Uh, I watched 20 episodes in preparation for tonight. And I'll do it again. Uh, letters to box cutters. Uh, we have one thing, perhaps. We've got some pork. Uh, we have Ben McKenzie. Woo! With Under Ben's Hat. Welcome. Yes, you hello, hello, welcome. welcome. Yeah, thanks for sounding so excited about being... You know, Brenny used to just like being here with mm-hmm. Brett. Mm-hmm. She did. Yeah. She was lovely like that. As always, though, we're going to kick things off with the Box Cutters News. Delta Goodrum comments on wearing a particular pantsuit on The Voice. We cross live now to Ben McKenzie for more details. Well, uh, Delta Goodrum felt that she was assassinated by the fashion mavens on Twitter because she wore the same pantsuit nine episodes in a row. But she's vowed to wear it again, Josh, just not on television. Thanks, Ben. And now to less important news. The ACTF, the Australian Children's Television Foundation, says that kids' TV is vulnerable. Uh, this is this is extraordinary, John. This is <laughs> sorry. I'm still in the pantsuit story. And you, you can't throw that kind of news at me and expect me to just come back on some kids' TV. It is, thing. I know, I know, because one is the future of Australian television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other is just children's TV. Also, am I the only person who heard Ben doing that with the sound of a helicopter underneath? <laughs> <laughs> We're reporting live from just over Channel Nine Studios. I think we can see Delta from here. Well, we're not quite sure if she's still wearing the pantsuit. Will Anderson on Twitter today pointed out he likes to uh, read the newspapers and pretend that he can't remember that Seal is a performer and just read it as Seal. <laughs> so it's like, you know, Seal judges people badly on The Voice. <laughs> <laughs> Delta <laughs> and Seal go head to head. That sort of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now I'm imagining that Delta is a, a river alluvial plane. <laughs> oh, no, it's abstract. <laughs> so the ACTF uh, in... in uh, conjunction with Screen Australia, so the ACTF, once again, the Australian Children's Television Foundation, uh, with Screen Australia conducted uh, a report or a, a survey into uh, how children's television is being produced, being screened and being viewed in, in Australia. And, and was the report positive? Not so much. Okay. The hardest part. I, I, I haven't read the. I haven't read the children's bits. I haven't read the bit about how children actually watch TV because the other two are a little bit scathing. And I don't want this this report. I, I don't want to read this report and find that they're just telling children they're watching TV wrong. <laughs> so, so one of the one of the large take take home messages: a large proportion of children find out about narrative programs by seeing them advertised on TV. So children find out about other TV shows to watch by seeing TV shows advertised on TV itself. Okay. Right, so it's a self-perpetuating viewership. 
However, there is limited opportunity or incentive for cross-promotion of children's programs to the child audience, given factors such as the restriction on promotions during children's programming set out in the children's television standards, which I think is about time and the kinds of things that you can, you can show mm-hmm. during, during advertising. The need for the commercial free-to-air networks to monetize programming through advertising and now with limited uh, the limited ability of what they can show during ads, that's now a bit uh, more complex for them. Back to the quote. And their tendency to promote their strongest properties, which are often general audience programs. So the TV networks, rather than promoting kids' TV to kids, are promoting general audience things. So say Neighbours, Home and Away, uh, G programming as, as a rule. They're promoting those during children's programming. And so this report is saying that's bad? Is that, is that the that point that's, of this? That that's bad because it doesn't then self-perpetuate the viewership. But are they also then other... saying they should be able to advertise different things? I'm confused by that point, though. What are they, well, what are they so trying one to of say? The, one of the other things that, that it seems like they're saying there shouldn't be the restrictions on advertising that they currently have on free-to-air commercial networks. So that worries me as a recommendation. Well, I think because... It needs to be in the network's best interest, and and they're saying the networks are only interested in making money. So if it's in the network's best interest, that being making money, to show a children's television program, then they will. And the the best way that they can make money is by advertising all of the fatty deep fried sugar. I can assure you that, I mean, that just makes me think that either... You're saying children's television is so important that it should just be legislated that you have to play it, and you have to play it in a way that is considered safe for whatever reasons they don't advertise this. Or you say, well, children's television is not that important, and kids should be able to watch anything they want, which I must admit, as a kid, we just watched the ABC, so I don't think, I don't know, I mean, it was country, nothing else was on, but... We just watched the stuff the ABC played, and a lot of what we really remembered from that was the Katie Everett video show, Doctor Who, all these shows that weren't actually meant to be kids' shows, or at least they were kids' shows that didn't feel they had to put 17 children into them to convince you it was a kids' show. Which weren't actually within the children's television viewing hours. Well, that, also, they were like 5.30 and onwards. Those so were, the, yeah. And those were G programming, not C programming. Yeah. But so ACTF is, is primarily focused on C programming. And I think when they're talking about children's television, they're talking mm-hmm. about C classification. I just think it'd be nicer if they could, maybe maybe it's a time to stretch the definition of the C programming. Because I know we did that thing about why isn't there any science fiction for adults in mm. Australia. I mean, a few years ago, you can find the podcast that. And it's really good. Part of that was that thing they were saying that, oh, yeah, for, for C classification programming, it has to have children in it. Yet mm-hmm. other countries do make children's programming that don't have children in them. And I think children don't like watching children. I know as a child, I didn't really like watching shows with kids in. And I think research shows time and time again, kids don't want to watch shows with kids in. Why but you, not make you were, shows for kids with adults that they can relate to? But you're a particularly misanthropic child. Well, and, you know, and I think I've carried that through into my adult life. Mm. But it's still that thing of even, I mean, um, breast gang was intended as a kid's program. The kids in it, though, were 16, 17, being played by 25-year-olds because it was English. And, do, and doing things like being completely independent and not really worrying about their parents. And Yes, and that was the kind of kid's program that kids want to see because mm. it's about actually being on that cusp of... Or at least it's about independence. And so I kind of think that would be the kind of programming that a broader audience can enjoy even if it does have children in mind. I, 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 tend, I tend to agree... Uh, I think that the uh, the way that we do children's television, and, and 
Australian children's television does so much better internationally than Australian Oh, wait, drama. Sorry, I should put it down, because our children's television is excellent. That's the thing. It is great. But my thing is, like, if you made Ocean Girl with, with 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds in it rather than 12-year-olds for a start, they'd be better actors. And then what is already a good show for kids becomes a good show for everybody that kids like. And, uh, and animation is uh, outweighing live action in, ch- in children's programming, which I think they see as a problem as well. Cause well, Dogstar. Actually, there's, there's an example. Uh, Dogstar, the show. The Keanu Reeves band. No. Created by Philip Dolkin and Doug McLeod. And it's an animated show. It's got kids in it, but they're all being voiced by adult comedians. Uh, Sean McAuliffe does the voiceover and also plays the cat in one episode where the cat could talk. And boy, I wish that cat could talk in all of them because he's so good. Uh, but that was a show aimed for kids, made for kids, but completely watchable to an adult audience. And yeah, so I almost think that animation is is better, but the report's telling me I'm wrong, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, the report, I think, is telling you you're wrong because one of the great things that children's television does and live action children's television does which uh might not be fun for you to watch john though is is that it gives children actors an opportunity to to be the stars of the show but that's what's wrong with it oh, look, it's not just me though this is the thing honestly i swear blind and maybe by the time we get to ben's hat he can prove me either wrong or not wrong but i'm sure that they have shown that kids prefer to watch adults that is actually just a a standard thing that's why doctor who like you know the kids are watching it and placing themselves into Sarah Jane Smith or whatever. They're not, they're not going, oh, I wish there was a, a 14-year-old boy genius who had a maths degree in this. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Gag for the fans. Wrong, wrong podcast, John. Wrong podcast. <laughs> so, Brett, remember last week Glenn Peters was talking about how great, how absolutely great the checkout is? Yep, yep. And, uh, and then Daniel D. Boxcutter wrote uh, on, on the blog, I'm old and there's too many colours. <laughs> well, in between then, yes. in, in between those two things happening, mm-hmm. Swiss, the uh, let's call them a vitamin company, mm-hmm. let's, a, a supplement. They are a supplement company. Is that what they call themselves? No, it's what I'm calling them. Okay. Uh, they make the supplements that uh, that have all the advertising and all of the shelf space in the supermarkets yep. and all the sponsorship. They've decided to sue the checkout team uh, because, according to them, the checkout said that the father of the CEO of Swiss who is uh, a scientist Mm -hmm. with Swinburne University, uh, has, well, essentially that he did not uh, properly uh, give the results of uh, of certain experiments that he made into... Sure, research, call it that, into a a weight loss supplement Mm -hmm. that they produce. So... uh, Weight loss or... I, I, I well, believe it was it was clarified appetite, appetite suppressant, appetite suppressant. Well, hunger not, suppressant, not particularly, no, not necessarily weight loss. So uh, this is uh, Avni Sali, who is the father of Swiss chief executive Radek Sali, mm-hmm. says he was defamed by by the oh, BRW calls it a skit. Oh dear. Yes. Oh BRW. That's sad for everyone involved. Uh, but says he was he was defamed, uh, and the the allegation is, quote, the program was meant and was understood to mean that the plaintiff, 
Dr. Sali, performed clinical tests and then manipulated the published results for the commercial benefit of Swiss. Yes, that's exactly what the... Uh, that, that, that's, that's exactly kind of what the checkout said, mm-hmm. except the checkout really did it in a very accurate way that referenced the, uh, the reports themselves. And I'm sure... Knowing uh, knowing the ABC as I do, and knowing people who have produced shows for the ABC as you do, John. Well, I believe the checkout has four lawyers, mm. from, from what I heard, listed mm-hmm. in the credits. Like, just four lawyers in the credits, not referring to how many. And the ABC, I can tell you, is crawling with lawyers. It really is. <laughs> I don't know lawyers. quite why there are so many lawyers in Australian television production. It's weird. Like, people who used to be lawyers and now aren't lawyers, who have become producers. Yep. It's a really common path. Um so, yeah, so look, I, I, I cannot imagine that that episode would have gone to air without the ABC being pretty content that they were on safe ground. In a statement by Michael Sava, who is the managing director of Swiss and also a board member, uh, he, uh, he says that uh, Avni Sali was a pillar in Swiss's research and development for 20 years before the current CEO joined Swiss. So all he's saying there is that uh, this guy was involved with Swiss and then his son got a job there where his dad <laughs> worked. There's actually no way that Swiss can come out well from this. Like, I'm, really I'm, not. I'm not sure why they're even doing this because uh, the checkout's rating well. Yep. But by bringing this much attention to the story they've done, surely all that's going to do is mean that like twice the audience will now watch it on YouTube. Okay. I, would, I wouldn't have heard about it unless well, no, Again, yes, I had not reported. heard of it until this report. It's the, um, it's the, the Streisand effect, isn't it called? I, I think so, yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a term for it, which I believe is the Streisand effect, and it came from when she, uh, some guy had taken all these photographs of, of the, the sort of cliff front millionaire properties in, in California, and he'd taken like you know 168 photographs, something, and she legally tried to remove the one that her photograph was in, which therefore that her, brought her property was her in. property that therefore brought attention to this image that no one even bothered looking at, and suddenly it became it's a thing of you you've drawn more attention to yourself. Everybody knew it was this yeah. person. Yeah, suddenly so. you've just just yeah you're, you're trying to keep this privacy, but you've generated this huge amount of attention for yourself, and that's exactly what Swiss seems to be doing. I just don't know why they even why did they think this was a good idea. Well, John, all publicity is good publicity. Is it, though? Well, is see, it? and here, here they have, ooh, let's say, every publication, every daily publication in Australia, and now also a weekly with BRW, uh, saying uh, that uh, this anti, uh, uh, this appetite suppressant is, uh, is, Dodgy. is largely, largely irrelevant, does not work, uh, and that it has been renamed and that, uh, and that it has been taken off the shelves and had to be renamed again and has been deregistered. But, I, but I'd be more upset about the whole brand. I think Swiss as a brand is basically, because the story is coming out now that the ABC said Swiss were dodgy, Swiss is suing them saying they're not dodgy, and now everyone's reporting that they're dodgy. Like, I mean, that's, that's, to me, that's much, much worse than just ignoring it and it, making it go away. It not, only, it, it not only makes Swiss look bad, it does terrible business for all supplements. I, I think I think now having all of this out in the open, whereas it used to just be on an ABC TV show, which let's face it, eight people watch. I think that's that's the ABC's motto, isn't it? Eight people a day. <laughs> uh, they, you know, not enough not enough people saw this for it to actually matter to Swiss, and. Uh, Swiss have asked that the ABC take it off their website, take the video off the website, which the ABC has not done. 
despite uh, d- despite being legally asked to do so, uh, and and it makes the entire supplement market look like horrible frauds. On the other hand, though, great publicity for checkout. Well done them. Yeah, yeah, they don't look like horrible frauds. Although some people think they have too many colours, and that is the box cutters news. I was living in a devil town Didn't know it was a devil town What are you? He's a bit different looking, but he's still the same. not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. We're living in a world where real monsters exist. They are not your neighbours, not your friends. They are imposters, changelings of the highest order. I don't feel ready. That's why they say I am ready. Because I'm feeling. For the undead, life begins again. In the Flesh on BBC Three. In the Flesh is a show from BBC Three. It is a three-parter that uh, focuses on the fictional village of Rawton in uh, Lancashire, England. Lancashire, you may know as a lyric in a Beatles song. There's been a zombie outbreak, mm-hmm. and the show starts with uh, with a couple of zombies attacking a, a woman, clearly a zombie fighter. Zombie fighter woman, mm-hmm. that's her full name. She's wearing camo. Yep, she's wearing camo and she has walkie-talkie. Uh, she's in a supermarket trying to get supplies, is attacked by two zombies, and uh, and they uh, start ripping into her. And this is the point where I thought, why is John Richards making us watch another zombie show? How is this making the world a better place but at all? then... I turned it off. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't turn it off. Then, then the zombie, the the, the male zombie in this uh, in, in this scenario, is shaken out of a dream state, and it turns out he's a rehabilitated zombie. Yeah. And that's just the first twist in the first three minutes of the show. And then there are levels and levels and levels. So the basic premise is that this takes place after a zombie apocalypse. In not which, during, not moments not, not before. During, but actually after. It's now been controlled. Civilization has returned to a, a fair degree. Uh, and the zombies can actually now be treated chemically and can be returned to the families they came from. So is it, it, it was a zombie outbreak rather than the zombie apocalypse. Yes, you're right. Because there's you're still right. humankind. That's that, a, are... that is a fair point, mm. Mr. Crumbly. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. I've been mm-hmm. hoisted on my own petard. But yes. So I've told you about bringing that petard into the <laughs> I, studio. I, just, I like it. Anyway, so, so dangerous. So, uh, so the zombies are being returned home. Uh, but of course, they're returning home to populations in which a whole bunch of people have lost their loved ones to attacks from zombies mm-hmm. and don't really want these zombies living amongst them. I, I kind of feel like almost anything else I tell you about this show is a spoiler. I, Be- I, I did wonder how we were going to discuss it. Because, I mean, that thing, but give you the premise, and I think the premise is sensational. And there is only, I think, one other post-zombie thing I can think of, which was uh, that film which had Billy Connolly in it. I want to say Fido, possibly, which I didn't see. I mean, that's, that's just the start of it. And I just... 
this thing, because yeah, I don't know how much more we can tell you about the plot, but I just thought this was sensational. I loved this so much. It's three parts of the the rule of three means that we've watched the whole series, except for Brett. Mm. Oh, apart from Brett, have mm. you seen any of it? I only Brett? found out today we were doing it. Oh, okay. Anyway, it was good, Brett. Because oh, you don't read emails on, on your behalf, Brett. Because you normally like everything. I'll tell you, you really like this. So it was. But this is the thing that I just found it astonishing because I I really like zombie stories when they are, are used in in the George A. Romero style of the zombie is there to represent something. It's a way of giving you a, a, a structure to discuss another issue altogether. So, so for example, in in, uh, in Night, Night of the Living Dead is about race. It's about race. Dawn, uh, Dawn of the Dead is about, dead about is consumerism. About consumerism. Um, even Land of the Dead, which is really underrated, I think, which is about American uh, Im- imperialism. Uh, imperialism and foreign policy. And Land- it's just the most astonishing discussion of those issues. Land of the Dead is, is fantastic. Day of the Dead lets, lets the team down a, a yeah, little okay. bit, I think. But, and that's the thing. And so this one... It, and it's fascinating. This actually came out of a, a thing that the BBC Writers' Room did for new writers called Northern Voices. Uh, so it's actually there as a way of talking about the North. Like, like you're going, wow, that's how you feel in the North. You guys are angry. Like, this is their idea of, of talking about... Because in, in Rawton, uh, there's a scene... And the only scene I, I was a bit disappointed by is that a politician from London comes up to address them. And he is played a bit too... He's wet. He's Very too wet. wet. And he's played too honest. It's too obvious. Too Hugh Grant. It's a, yeah, and it's a little bit too... He's obviously meant to be pathetic and all yeah. that. But, but the thing I really like is he's, they, they're going, why didn't you help us? Why did no one defend us? And he's going, well, because we had to protect the big cities. And, and that's what we did. And, and the whole world of Rawton has been so brilliantly put together that you get the fact that there are no police. You know, the person in charge of the town is a priest because obviously religion has had a massive upsurge, as it would after an attack of the living dead. You know, and uh, there's even one scene where some people are watching television and it's a religious program. And it's that level of detail where someone's gone, no, TV be playing religious stuff in primetime now. That's what they'd be doing. Uh, they've got this uh, vigilante gang who have been protecting the town who have been presented in a slightly kind of Northern Irish kind of way in this as well. And then when the zombies are being returned, there's this nervousness in the town about, you know, who represents them. And, and just that degree of, of character and, and world building in this, I think, is quite astonishing. It's, uh, it's interesting to watch this weeks after Margaret Thatcher's death because it, brings, uh, it, it brought up all the history of... Of Northern England. Mm. Because she was uh, England's first zombie prime minister. Yes. <laughs> yes. And back in the, in the 80s when uh, the North was pretty much brought to its knees in, in England. And, uh, and then to see all of this happen again at the end of a zombie apocalypse where these people now have to struggle to keep together. People who were teenagers when... Uh, when the North had its first set of tragedies, mm-hmm. uh, now have to rebuild again in this uh, after this second set of tragedies, and not only that, but the very people who were responsible are now supposed to live amongst them, and yes. according to London, according to the bureaucrats are just supposed to be allowed to be considered citizens. And it's also a story about bigotry as well. And what I found fascinating was that they've... Uh, by they, I mean probably Dominic Mitchell here, who's the writer. Um, he's some 33-year-old, way too talented... It's his first TV. I'm so angry it's at him. It's his first TV. I just... I cannot forgive him enough. He is a playwright, though. He's written quite a few plays, and I think it shows in the idea that thematically 
this work is so strong. They're so and strong it, on what the themes are and how he's put them together. And, and it ends like a play ends. And it ends up, but also the thing is, and I'll, I'll get to the end of that, the, the thing I can say without spoiling, but I just want to say that about the bigotry. He's kind of done this pick and choose thing over great bigoted moments of the 20th century. So you have things like... Uh, uh, a doors being painted at one point to say the zombies live mm-hmm. there, which is a reference to pre World uh, pre World War Two Germany, yeah, and, and the Jewish, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, the barking of the the houses and the yeah. You've got what you're talking about there is the Holocaust. The Holocaust. That's the word I was looking for. Um, I forget what you people call it. <laughs> and there is there's a bit about uh, a segregation in the U.S. The kind of black white stuff, especially in the 50s. You've got the whole sort of um, homophobia aspect in there. It's just this amazing way he's coming back to. All of these little checkpoints in there. But then uh, on top of that, there's great, uh, a really great understanding of the different ways parents relate to their children. Well, this is the thing I was going to say. The thing that got me all the way through it, and I only realized sort of in the third episode, was the fact that in the entire run, no one ever actually says what they mean, and no one ever says what they say, what they what they want to say. And it is so rare to see that much subtext on television. And the fact that he's built that in to a degree, where one of the very final scenes is the dad actually saying what he feels, and I was just devastated in that sequence because you suddenly realize it's the only scene in the entire. <laughs> three episodes in which anyone has actually expressed themselves honestly. And it's it's so... It, it is so moving. And yes, Brett, I know what you're thinking. Why are Josh and John agreeing on a show? And uh, and I think it's because it is that good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's that good. The Sitting through all three of them, I actually... Uh, I, I got through all three of them in, in one day. I didn't want to wait. And uh, it it felt so, so much like, so much like the first time I saw Cracker, mm-hmm. the the Robbie Coltrane cop series, yeah. where he is a forensic psychiatrist who is also a gambling drunk who has so many problems. We'd never seen a character with that many problems on television before also act as a completely functional professional human being mm-hmm. uh, in 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 a way that he is you know probably now that I think about it so clearly modeled on Sherlock Holmes the uh, seeing someone with that many flaws on television at the time was really foreign in uh, in, in in the flesh seeing that much subtext, you know, we 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 see it in shows like Deadwood. We see it in shows like The Wire, but we don't see it all that often. And we see it mostly in shows that get cancelled really, really quickly. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is three episodes was interesting. It struck me in the same way that um, Dead Set, another UK mm. zombie series, both Dead Set and this were effectively three-hour movies. Like. It, in some ways, they're not necessarily split into episodes so much. I'd say In the Flesh actually does more with the episodic structure. But even then, In the Flesh, I think, takes place over like three days. I mm-hmm. think the actual, the actual time in the story is very, very short. Um, and there's an act of violence towards the end, which is somehow brilliantly, obviously, that's what's going to happen in a way that feels really satisfying that it will. It's, it's like it's like a tiny piece of Chekhov. It is. It's, and again, it's very theatrical in a way that it's so structured, so beautifully kind of constructed to go, okay, this, this thing leads to this thing, and this is all 
and it's all so thought out. It's not like an American series where they're making 22 episodes and will adjust as they go. This is clearly one work mm. in one go. It is cohesive. And at a time when we're not seeing a lot of cohesive television, especially cohesive television around the concept of zombies, when we look at things like The Walking Dead, yeah. which is just an excuse for soap opera yeah. in a zombie scenario. I and mean, this is so superior to The Walking Dead. Just an extraordinary piece of television. Brett, I recommend that you watch the second mm, mm. And, third and third episode, yeah. even though you've had spoilers. It, it really shows up, shows like... The Walking Dead and True Blood uh, for just being trash, I think. So well done in the flesh. And it is good to know that uh, there are actually uh, disaster plans for uh, the case of a zombie outbreak and that we will survive. Uh, Well, we will survive. Great, you are so bait (laughs) in a zombie apocalypse. It's... uh Uh, Not a lot of audio mixing required. Oh, but coffee. We will need coffee. This is Marie Cardi, and you are listening to that fluffy white cloud of goodness box cutters. (laughs) Stick it in the fire and eat it. (laughs) And with that, we go to John Richards. Hey, before you say what we're actually doing in things you may have missed, can I play an audio clip in the hope that this will just bring freaky flashbacks to certain listeners of certain ages? Yes. Track 15, please. What would you have done if we'd said no? Rain on tenor sax? Of course it isn't. Uh, it's, it's not even him miming it. But, <laughs> but if you were dancing like a geeky Greek bass player by the end of that, then there's something wrong with you. That was, I'm guessing, the takeaways. So, Sweet and Sour, why, why are you bringing this to, uh, to, to Things You May Have Missed? Well, it was look, a very popular show at the look, time. It was a popular show at the time, but here's the thing. Sweet and Sour was a 20-part series on the ABC in 1984 about a band in inner-city Sydney trying to make a go of it. And as a kid, I adored this show, and I had both the albums. There were, there were two volumes, Sweet and Sour Volume 1 and 2. I only have Volume 2 on the vinyl. Oh, nice. Um, and oh, I think Lindell has Volume 1. No, we're covered. And it got repeated a few times and then sort of vanished. I know it was all those shows was always hard to find, and every so often I would check torrent sites and see if I could find it. And, and yeah, and most of the video clips are up on on YouTube, and then someone pointed out there are whole episodes on YouTube, which led me to the discovery that there are all of the episodes on YouTube, and I watched all 20 of them. And my fear was, going back as an adult, that clearly this would be a load of crap. And what I discovered was that not only did I love it, it was better than I remember. Oh, really? <laughs> I got like, well, not in, you, in, a, in, a, in a trashy kitsch way? Well, no, this is the, possibly in all ways, altogether. It was actually more because as an adult, I suddenly realized all the stuff that was in it that I didn't see as a kid, which was kind of interesting in itself. So just to look, just to put this into perspective. So it's a show about Carol, played by Tracy Mann, takes a train to Sydney in the first episode, saying she's moving away from Melbourne. She's going to start again. She meets her friend Martin, played by David Rain, who was a guitarist. 
They end up forming a band with a few other people. Uh, there are songs in it which the band perform. Performed in kind of a Partridge family type Well, no, of no, as in, as in in pubs. You see them you, know, you see them rehearsing, you see them playing in pubs. You their, see first, them. their first gig is at uh, a backyard party. Yeah, so they, you have this thing of there's lots of music that makes sense. There's also sequences, though, in which people will break into song in order to express how they're feeling about things. Which like are, in cop rock? Well, which are presented more as video clips. And and it is it is the eightiest thing you can possibly imagine. It is it is so eighties that in one scene, when uh, is it Sandra Lindon? I think plays Chrissy, the the sax player. There's a sax player. That's oh. already a sign. It's very eighties. There's there's a, a scene where I thought it's almost like the director said, "Ah, oh, that's not eighties enough." Chrissy, can you pick up that Rubik's cube and just play with it for a bit? And she <laughs> idly plays with the Rubik's cube in the back of the shop. But the interesting thing too, at the time, a whole lot of people were inspired to become musicians through the show. Uh, I know the Mavises talked about it. Um, there was a lot of bands. Um, in fact, Wally Gunn, who, who was a, an indie kid here and then is now a composer uh, in New York City, he left a comment on my Facebook today when we're talking about saying, basically, because it was pointed out to me by my partner he, as I was watching this, who'd never seen this before. He was going, hang on, this inspired people to become musicians and yet constantly throughout this, they're being ripped off, they're at each other's throats, they're struggling, they're poor, and ultimately they fail. I know, how glamorous. Why on earth would that inspire people? And Wally left his comment saying, they struggled and failed, but for a weird queer boy growing up awkwardly in dull rural Victoria, struggling and failing in a rock band in inner city Sydney while writing excellent pop songs and wearing amazing alternative outfits seems so glamorous. And I think also the music was incredibly good, which is partly because it had virtually every name of that period. Tracy Mann's singing voice was Deborah Conway, but we didn't know that then because she wasn't anybody yet. Wasn't she? Was, she was already talking. Dairy Me. Dairy Me was Mee. the band, but the Dairy Me uh, Man Overboard came out a year later. So right. it's actually, you know, certain people in inner city Sydney would have known who she was, but she wasn't the name she became. There was a deal done on the music that the ABC would own the copyright to the songs for a limited period and it would return to people, which meant they could get Sharon O'Neill to write both the, the lead um, single and also she wrote Glam to Wham, which was the second single. Um, in real life Sharon O'Neill at the time great songwriter I don't know what happened to her Um, you had uh, Maxine she she did a song called Maxine Dave Dave McComb from the Triffids wrote Mm -hmm. a couple of songs Um, there's a a song later Cold Chisel did their own this is the funny thing too in real life people covered takeaway songs because they were written by the people from real bands and the fake band would record it and then so the real Don, band would... did Don Walker write uh, Don Walker wrote one of the tracks wow um, which is really good uh, it's just this thing of, of at least five singles later came out that were covers of takeaway songs and in fact as is a, as a massive spoiler and I do apologise for this but the band doesn't really get anywhere in the show which is quite fascinating for that sort of you know you expect these to be rags to riches it's rags to rags mm-hmm. they don't go anywhere in real life, the fake band was more successful than the fake band was in the fictional show they were from. In real life, their album went platinum and they had three singles. In the show, their first attempt at recording a single, turns out they've plagiarized it from another band, and their second single sells like four copies. Like, that's, that's the show. They go on a tour to Melbourne in uh, episode 17, and it's just tragically awful. Were they ever on Countdown? They were on Countdown. At, like in real life? Or yeah, on the show? No, 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 in real life. No, no, not, not in the show, because they were never no, no. successful enough to be in Countdown. Although, weirdly, Molly Meldrum does appear in one episode as a radio DJ. But, um, but in real life, the actors appeared on Countdown, promoting the record they didn't play on. But that was to say, as an adult, what I didn't notice is partly I didn't kind of factor in that failure. Because, again, like, like Wally was saying there, as a kid, it was the excitement of inner city, because we, we didn't make urban 
shows and we still don't really make urban shows we've always been a very suburban and country television world so to make something that was at that city to country boys like myself was very exciting so is there a lot of location stuff in it or there I, is. Like, I, I have a vague memory of it looking like the the home and away cafe oh look it's, it's shot in video and it, it does yeah look it does look a bit soapy and the acting can go very prisoner from time to time. Oh, what are you doing, Shrug? Oh, here's the saxophone, Chrissy. You have a go. There's a bit of that. <laughs> but uh, what I was surprised by, there's an awful lot of guerrilla filmmaking in it. That um, They often put them out in the real streets and they've clearly put the camera is on the other side of the road. It's upstairs in a building. They're doing an awful lot of stuff that I, I suspect they didn't have permission to do. But they're out there. Nobody needed permits back in the 80s, I did know. They? It, it, look, it, it kind of fascinated me. And... The fact that it was created by a couple of people who had been in bands, there's a sort of realism to it and the way they get ripped off. And Martin, the guitarist, watching it now, and now that I know so many musicians, the kind of embittered, prepared for failure but not for success, um, willing to move on to bands at a second's notice, I just, I know that guy so well. And also in the show, there are these constant guest cameos that as a kid... I didn't know the guy asking for directions on the street was Dave Mason from The Reels. Mm-hmm. But now I'm going, oh my God, it's Dave Mason from The Reels. The woman trying on hats in the boutique is Chrissy Amphlett. Wow. Yeah, it's it's the guy behind them waiting for, for his turn to buy the 17 boxes of Omo is actually from The Sunny Boys. There's this constant, every episode has these people in it that you now go, wow, look at that. At one point when they take the... The, the tape in to, to, well, Triple J, I would call it, but it's referred to as JJJ every time it shows up. It was JJJ back then. Oh, so, so it was already on uh, FM It was already three J's, but they weren't triples. Um, but, but it wasn't national. No, I don't think it was national. No, no, it wasn't, it wasn't no. national until, until the late 80s, but it was on FM if it was Triple J, yeah. but if it was JJJ, because it, 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 it was double J. It was J, double J. Yeah. Anyway. anyway, when George gives the tape to the guy at Triple J, um, and I looked him up because I thought, well, clearly you are a person I meant to know in the same way as Dave Mason and whatever. And I looked him up on Wikipedia and he was basically the, the Richard Kingswell equivalent at Triple J at the time, I think. So he was a real Triple J presenter. But the first sentence on Matt Cocker's Wikipedia entry is, Matt Cocker is an English actor and radio broadcaster currently based in Australia. He is the estranged father of British musician Jarvis Cocker. Hmm. It's Jarvis Cocker's dad! (laughs) That's forward-thinking, sweet and sour! How did they even know? How did they know? Look, I mean, I I put so many notes because I was just so excited watching this and having so much fun with it, and and the music is sensational. Um, It passes the Bechdel test, but not in in the expected way because the band has two female members but weirdly they hardly ever talk to each other oh. but there are these scenes where Carol talks to like the woman who runs a boutique who hires her a few times she has a discussion with the woman on the train in the first episode who's selling tea about what she's going to do with her life the woman of course is played by Renee Geyer mm. again as a kid no idea John Paul Young shows up as a barman the guy um, the, the really uh, angry engineer on the where they go to record their single is Red Simons it's just <laughs> who, who also has a song in the in uh, he, in wrote, the soundtrack. he wrote Psychosis, which is the one they rip off to be no focus. It's just, yeah, it's, look, it's astonishing. But anyway, I would say that it does pass the Bechdel test because when the women talk, they're talking about work and life and business, which is very exciting. There is one scene where the, where the, where the two women in the band actually get to talk together. And curiously enough, it's on the second soundtrack album. People are picking on me. What do you mean? Like the band magazine Last night, picking me out of the band, raising me above everybody. I mean, yeah. 
see a girl. Did you feel that? Sometimes. Yeah. Well, stuff it. We're just part of a band, same as the boys. Not a freak show. Really interesting. This show was doing all this stuff at, at I think five thirty in the afternoon. Oh. I think it was it was playing at that time. And I, yeah, wow. I was, I, I'm amazed because I don't remember Sweet and Sour in that way. I remember uh, I, I remember the songs. I remember the band. I remember wanting to be in a band because of it. But I was I was very very young. What 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 year was it? Eighty four. Eighty four. And according to the liner notes, and I should mention the ABC put the two albums out onto a single C D. It was actually the first time they'd ever been on C D in two thousand and ten. So you can get the the music and I think it's great. I recommend it. But it comes with excellent liner notes as well. By Glenn A. Baker. By Glenn A. Baker. Which gives you a lot of history and a lot of how it was put together. And the mentions in there that got shown three times in fairly quick succession and I think that was it. And then it basically hasn't been repeated. Apparently well, it can't be put out in D V D because of the rights to the music. Music rights. I suspect it's both the music rights uh, for the songs, but also I suspect there's a lot of music playing in the background of scenes. There's a lot of people have the radio on, the models we on, that sort of thing. I think that uh, amount of clearance is probably also unlikely to ever be overcome. So put it on YouTube and let so them see. So pretty much YouTube. And, and, and what annoyed me is that one episode had actually been taken down off YouTube. Someone had done the whole, oh, no, that's our copyright thing, and it had been removed and it's clearly been put back up again. And you kind of go, what is the point? What is the point of taking this down if, you know, you're saying you want 100% of nothing as opposed to 10% of nothing? Like, yeah, there's, there's no... No one can make any money out of this. At least let people watch it. Mm. You know, it, it seems a bit childish to claim that because your song's playing in the background on the radio that somehow your copyright's being infringed. I wish there was a way people could get to see it legally, but there isn't. So I, I think there's nothing wrong with embracing the fact that you get to see it at all. I would really like the ABC if they... There's some claim the ABC might still have broadcast rights to it. And I would love them to either play it again on ABC2 late at night or play it during count uh, during um, rage like they play the countdown repeats mm-hmm. you know i think you know play two or four episodes in one go over five weeks or whatever i think it'd be awesome i think it's worth watching i think you probably look you probably do have to be the right age to have seen it the first time around i imagine if you watch it just now you're going what the hell is this but the music is still excellent i think by itself and you know give it a go oh do yourself a favor hey See, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Fiona Cannon writes Both Vikings and Orphan Black are from networks I don't ordinarily associate with great drama series. The History Channel for Vikings and BBC America for Orphan Black. I would love to hear some box cutter thoughts on either of these shows and also how networks traditionally not known for this kind of programming are starting to break through and can potentially succeed where the big networks are failing. Is it just a matter of being original and resisting the urge to copycat the big networks who all copy each other? Or is it something more? Thanks, Fiona. Something more, I think, John. We, we did cover, odd enough, some of what Fiona asked there in the second half we covered last week. I think we talked about the new approach with people like you know Netflix and Amazon and Xbox and we we discussed some of that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Fiona, do you don't listen? <laughs> you don't listen to the show. We do these things for you, and you don't even listen. If you want to be berated, send a letter to <laughs> hooray at boxcutters.net or there's a contact us link on the blog at boxcutters.net. What about our other point though? You, you review the shows. 
Oh look yeah, at we, Vikings and yeah, stuff? yeah. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at Vikings oh, and stuff. And and I, I started watching uh, Orphan Black, and it's it's interesting. It's like uh, it starts off like that terrible Sarah Michelle Gellar series, but then uh, quickly becomes a lot better. So I look like my twin. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I look like my twin. Yeah, and doesn't have an amazing boat. Uh, discussing. My scene. twin has a boat. My twin has a boat. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's more watchable, but maybe not as much fun to poke fun at. Right. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to watch... I've heard good things about Vikings as well. So uh, we will get to both of those at some stage this year, hopefully, Fiona. If you watch one thing... I got, I got, I got nothing. I got nothing to watch this th- this week. Nothing to recommend no, at all. Nothing written. No. Really, really. I mean, there's there's stuff that there's is it is it just because you're all your time's taken up with The Voice, and, <laughs> and, and breaking news on fashion faux pas. I'm just I'm just hoping that Delta wears that pantsuit again just to prove people wrong for the rest of her life. It's weird. I was going to actually originally I was going to say I was going to watch the last three episodes of Sweet and Sour. Only I managed to watch them last night at like one o'clock in the morning. So yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I've now watched all television. Oh, I think there's a new Bob's Burgers episode that I haven't watched yet. I watched that. Last week's Bob's Burgers was excellent. <laughs> hey, how about Wednesday night, ABC 2, 9.30, uh, head first? Oh, yeah, that's a good show. That's a good it's one. A, I, I got to catch the first two over the week. And yeah. Looking, very much looking forward to uh, to number three. Yeah, the the, the third one is uh, is is something special. Uh, John, John, when you uh, edited that uh, that episode mm. of us, did you did you find that we were uh, just falling all over Sabor Bradley? Uh, a little. Yeah, it was it was a little disgusting. Are you wearing today, Ben McKenzie? <gasps> this week it's a trilby, a fine trilby. And ah. what is under that hat? My head, Josh. But in between my head and the hat are some facts. Facts! Excellent! I looked up a whole bunch of things. Uh, first, most interestingly, for the news, the Australian Children's... Uh, sorry, I'll say that again. The Australian Children's Television Foundation study uh, covers children aged 2 to 14 who listed uh, all their favourite television programs. I was shocked and astounded that Doctor Who does not appear in the top 10 programs for Australian children aged 2 to 14 in either the children's, family or adult categories. What do the children say, though? What are their picks? Uh, For children's programs, they like things like Ben 10, SpongeBob SquarePants, Horrible Histories. Uh, Apparently Horrible Histories is a lot of fun. It is is a lot of fun, Um, I've heard. Uh, (laughs) Family shows uh, include uh, MasterChef. Apparently, kids like MasterChef. MasterChef. Yeah, the X Factor. Really? really? I think I'm uh, The Big Bang good. Theory. I, I challenge that that's the, a family show, but that's I where they've listed that it. I challenge it's a show. I do too. I know that Friends you know. was all, when Friends was on, that was one of the biggest kids shows. Oh, yeah, because yeah. it's like the Wiggles, but they're drinking coffee. <laughs> uh, adult shows. I found this the most disturbing. Um, the adult shows that kids 2 to 14 really like include uh, CSI, NCIS, and Bones. Also, The Big Bang Theory is also listed as an adult show, so I think they let the okay. kids decide which was which. I think kids are bang up for Breaking Bad and Mad Men. Kids love that they, shit. They are <laughs> mad for it. 
now, uh, interesting, you were asking, do kids prefer to watch adults on television or do they prefer to watch other kids? And mm. I couldn't find any studies that talk about that. And they don't address that in this study. The closest they come, um, they talk about the fact that producers making children's TV express the view that the criteria for determining a C program doesn't allow for what they call aspirational viewing, which is viewing where you make a children's program, but it's about adults doing adult things that maybe children would be interested in doing when or, they or become like adults. Or press gang, where they're nearly adults. Yeah. Only. Apparently, ACMA's criteria for a children's program state that the main actors portrayed in the program must be within the age range uh, that the t- program is targeted at, or if the main actors are outside that age range, the issues and themes need to be dealt with in a way appropriate for the age group, which I think kind of does allow for them to make aspirational but it is, shows. If you read the ACMA, because I did read through it one time, John Wickhoff, I could picture things a kid show. Uh, it, it is it's vague. It's very vague, but in real life, apparently, it's always argued that they have to be kids. Yeah. I cannot wait for Outland Babies. <laughs> <laughs> Can it be animated? <laughs> Um, now, the other thing I found was really interesting is that the press release we were looking at, uh, which was titled Children's Television Content Production Vulnerable in the New Media Landscape, does no longer appear on the ACTF website. Oh. And if you go there, there's now another one which was released on March, uh, sorry, May 6th, uh, titled Guess What? Kids Want to Watch Their Own TV Programs. And I had a look at the two, and they are quite different but they're basically talking about the same study i think the reason they pulled the original one though is because there was a quote in it from uh, actf ceo jenny buckland who was quoted as saying after all taxpayers are stumping up to 21 million dollars to attract a one-off big budget disney feature film 20 leagues under the sea oh that's not enough leagues it's not enough leagues and <laughs> Too i think few leagues rather yeah. than just fact check it they needed me on the case i would have checked that fact like a <sighs> mofo uh but they did not check that fact. Instead, they replaced the whole thing. But even in the new you would, one... You would have checked the Nemo out of that. <laughs> well, I would have. I would have. Now, the thing in, in the new one, in the new press release, they say that children, and this was also a point in the original one, that children value Australian content. But that isn't really borne out by the data that's actually in the study that they're quoting. Because if you go and have a look, kids do show a preference for drama as opposed to non-fictional reality TV programs. Uh, they do show a preference for programs that are specifically made for children or families rather than for adults. But a large majority of them, 80% of the kids they surveyed, said they don't care where the program is made. Mm-hmm. So it's not really borne out. Uh, 17% of them did say that they preferred Australian and only 3% said they preferred if it was made somewhere else. But most of them don't care. They just want to see something that they like. They don't really care where it's made. So I think they're making a bit of a, an outlandish claim there. Uh, now, we talked about In the Flesh, um, and uh, Josh, you mentioned that you thought it was a bit like Cracker, mm-hmm. which I thought is possibly due to the fact that Eric Tomlinson, who appears in the program, um, was in Cracker as DCI Charlie Wise. Oh, yes. Uh, and also, famously, uh, he played Jim Royal in The Royal Family. Did you say Eric Tomlinson? Eric Tomlinson. He, he's, he's generally referred to as Ricky. That's, that's, that's oh. the kind of... Well, yeah. his official name is Eric. Yeah, because when you were saying Eric Tomlinson, I was like, I'm sure that's not right. I thought Ricky it was Ricky Tomlinson who was in that. I was like, oh, no, no, it's, it's, it's well, the, the same North, you, guy. It's, the North is like Australia in that respect. You can't use people's real names, so you have to it, use a nickname. Either way, Ben is right. That is exactly why I thought it was like Cracker. Really? Mm, now, mm, one mm. of you also said it was like a three-hour movie, which is interesting because uh, there was a similarly themed French series called Le Revenants. Uh, oh, which I tried oh. to find I tried to find which the copies of the English version of the Returners or the English title is um they came back. Well, revenants are, yes. are a similar mythological creature, like a mm. zombie. It's a dead person who returns to life. Um, and that was based on a film which was released in two thousand and four, also French. Yes. Um, and they both feature 
people who are from the dead coming back to a small isolated community and trying to reintegrate into the society but that is not about a zombie outbreak they don't know where those dead people Mm. came from or how they came back to life and there's a lot more supernatural stuff happening in that series and you said it was also an interesting to see the internal monologue of a zombie um, that also happened in the 2013 film warm bodies which uh, and starred a, a zombie named r who starts to regain his humanity because when he eats the brains of living people he gets their memories oh. uh, and he is redeemed through that and of course the power of love and then struggles to convince the survivors of the zombie outbreak that he has become more human um, so it's a very similar theme. It's it's something that, that uh, like modern zombie film. movies are, are it's working been, on. It's meant to be all right, I think. Yeah. It looks good it's from a, the It's meant to be a romantic comedy, yeah, yeah between the zombie and the girl. Now, you, also, you said during uh, the discussion about In the Flesh, uh, you did say a little bit of Chekhov, which I checked, and, uh-huh. and that is the wankiest thing you've ever said on Box Cutters. <laughs> See, I find that is hard it, to believe. I'm sure fact? you've said wankier things. Is that a fact? <laughs> it is a fact. Apparently that's a fact, John. Um, uh, i got a couple uh, more facts. Ding. Fred's going to write in. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't in episode 18. You're it right, totally right, right, right. is. Uh, now, I did check. Uh, you were quite correct. Uh, Deborah Conway recorded the vocals for Sweet and Sour well before she was famous. She recorded those vocals uh, in 1983, before the show was on air in 1984, when she was still with Do Re Mi, and they didn't disband until 1988. They only released two albums, but in 1988, when they released their second album, she was named by Rolling Stone Australian Female Singer of the Year. Mm. Uh, so she did all right. Um, also, 2JJ began broadcasting on August the 1st, 1980 on FM, which is when it became 2JJJ. So in 1980 it became... In 1980, but it didn't expand nationally until 1989. Oh. And even then that was only to major capital cities. We didn't get it in places like where I grew up until much later in the 90s. Um, and uh, I did the also Arctic check... circle. Yeah, <laughs> you can get it now apparently in Mawson Station, but we couldn't get it in the north coast of New South Wales. Uh, and I did also check, and uh, Pinky and the Bicycles does not appear to be a real band. Okay, good. Now, uh, before we uh, get the commenters on the blog, I should uh, say I misspoke earlier. Uh, of course, Margaret Thatcher was the first uh, zombie prime minister of the United Kingdom, not of just England. <laughs> I was going to pick you up on that, but frankly, it was Margaret Thatcher, and I wasn't that interested. Yeah. So. No, but th- thank you for clearing that it's up. Okay. Okay. She was well, a zombie prime minister for everyone, is what you're saying. <laughs> Even in Scotland and in the north. Hey, um, when I cast my pod, it's with the box cutters in mind. Box cutters. Pod. Cast. Done. Pork is on the table. That brings us to the end of Box Cutters episode three hundred and forty. If you enjoyed, one. if you enjoyed this episode, uh, Brett, have you got a, another podcast? Uh, no, not at the moment. Why the hell? Everyone is doing another podcast these it's, days. Uh, stay tuned, uh, John. You've got uh, you've got another podcast. Yeah? I do, I do. Yes. What's uh, what's that called? It's called Splendid Chaps. I do it with a guy called Ben McKenzie. He's really cool. Uh, is, we, he, is he John? Is he? He is. We've got one coming up on May 19th because we, we record them live in front of an audience. I don't understand that. Because we're, we're desperate for approval. So, May 19th, the public bar at 5 p.m., um, we will be joined by horror writer Noel M. Harris and comedian Tegan Higginbotham to discuss the fifth doctor uh, in Doctor Who, Peter Davison, and the concept of fear in Doctor Who. Fear. Oh, I was so hoping you were going to say veterinarianism. No, no, that'll just come up sort of naturally. <laughs> Will you be there for that, Ben? 
Yeah, yeah, because I, I do a podcast too. Do you? Yeah, it's called Splendid Chaps. I do it with this guy, John Richards. He's oh, pretty cool. Yeah, I've heard of him. Is he, Ben? Is he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is, Brett. Yeah. I'm sorry, Brett. I, I, I started that. I started that just because I wanted to talk about my other podcast, <laughs> The Nudge, which is all about design. Episode two is out now. I hear and it's nudgy. It is. It's pretty, it's pretty nudgy. Wait a minute. You're saying it doesn't star that guy from Hey Dad? It does not. You should get him on, though. That'd be awesome. But don't let him speak. Dub him with Deborah Conway. <laughs> the uh, the a- a- episode two of, uh, of The Nudge is all about inspiration in design. Uh, and is it a crock of shit or not? And are you still recording that in front of live audience? In front, in front of... Look, it's... I'll come and sit in front of you while you record it. We, we, record, it, we record it on Elizabeth Street and the windows are pretty thin. Okay. <laughs> so... May as well, but it's in front of a live tram. Okay, but not because you did one in the pub, didn't you? Oh yeah, we do. Uh, so from for, from time to time, uh, we're trying to do them monthly, but uh, logistics is is a, a little bit difficult. Uh, we do a live uh, nudge episode where we interview somebody who has had to hire designers. Mm-hmm. In their in their work and talk oh. about what that process is. So finding out about design from the client's eyes, uh, and the next one of those will be in June. Stay tuned for more information about that. Until next week, my name is Josh Canal. I'm John Richards. I'm Ben McKenzie. I continue to be Brett Cropley. Thanks for listening to Box Cutters. Catch us again next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. And hey, let's be careful out there. Cutters is produced by Josh Canal with Brett Cropley and John Richards and help from Courtney Hocking and Dave Lawson. John Richards edited this episode. Peter Wilson from Soup Giant is the man behind making sure you can actually download stuff. He's good that way. We'd like to thank 3RRR, the greatest radio station in the world, for letting us use their studios to record this podcast. Find them on the web at rrr.org.au or 102.7 FM if you listen to radio the old-fashioned way. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can show your appreciation by leaving a positive review on iTunes or maybe just telling some friends what they're missing out on. You can also donate actual cash money to us by using the donate button at the top of our website. Donating helps keep the show alive and makes us smile. Our website is boxcutters.net and you can find all sorts of ways to contact us there. Hey Brett, you know if people wanted uh, if, if people wanted to find out all the show notes uh, from this episode, mm-hmm. and by all the show notes I mean some of them, like links to uh, all of the episodes of Sweden Tower on YouTube, or some At of the, the episodes, uh, links to where you can find them. Sure. Uh, yeah, things like that will be available on the blog at boxcutters.net slash episode 340. That's, uh, that's, that's, where you'll, uh, that, that's where you'll find that. Oh, excellent. Uh, is, is that all we'll find there? John might be there. Ben, maybe. Courtney. How about this guy? Hi, this is Pete Smith. You've been listening to or have just missed Box Cutters. <laughs>